This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and today I'm happy to be here in Cape Town at the University of the Western Cape with Bruce May, who's a member of the Faculty of Education here at UWC. Bruce, thanks so much for speaking with me. No problem. We're going to be talking about some of Bruce's work related to practice and problems and a teaching model that he is working on. Um, And he wrote a conference paper with Cyril Julie, uh, and that is called Deepening Thinking Like Problems, the Case of Two Students. Um, but Bruce, before we get into that research that you're doing, I want to just actually back up and ask you where you got your PhD. Where did you study? I studied all my degrees, by the way, was done here at UWC. Great. And my PhD is very recent. I only got it last year. Mm-hmm. My supervisor, like you just now said, is uh, Professor Cyril Julie. And part of the work that I've been doing with him is what is in this paper. Uh-huh. And what has kept you at UWC? What do you really like about this place where you stay here? I studied here in uh-huh. the 80s, and that was a very turbulent time in, in the history of South Africa and all that. Yeah. I went to go teach after that. I qualified as a teacher, went to go teach. And then at some stage, I realized that high school teaching is not for me. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to come back and, and, and continue my studies. And the best place that could accommodate me back then, mm-hmm. and I started my honors after that, was UWC because... Mm-hmm. When I left in the 90s, I was accepted for a honors degree, but I never attended classes and all that. So I, when I realized that, I, that high school teaching was becoming problematic for me, and that's a whole story, a story all on its own, and I wanted to do something else, I remember that I've registered here for a honors that I've never completed and all that, mm-hmm. and I came back and I, and I did it. And subsequently, I got a job in the mathematics department here at UWC, okay. not as a lecturer, but as a what they would call a uh, support staff, right? And what that basically meant in the in the mathematics department was that I would be lecturing and all that, oh. but I wouldn't have the title. Oh. So they used me <laughs> to teach what they would call its courses that the science faculty teach for other faculties. Oh, yeah, service so, courses. Yeah, we call yes, those service courses. Yes. Yeah. Some of the service courses that I taught back then was um, like in 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 the commerce like quantitative skills for commerce. Uh, I taught two courses there. One was highly mathematical, preparing students to go into becoming chartered accountants. And the other one was more for just ordinary accounting and so on. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed that. But the one course that I did when I was in the mathematics department that I really enjoyed was with Professor Frey back then. Mm -hmm. And this course was a course, it was an elective course for students that wanted to do another mathematics besides the pure mathematics that they, that they are doing yeah. there. So the pure mathematics that they are doing is the first semester is basically calculus, mm-hmm. university level calculus and so on and so on. But um, there is this other mathematics, and I've got a textbook there, mm-hmm. that he worked from, and this, the content of this module dealt with proof and proving. Uh, yeah. um, it's written by Susanna, and it is discrete, a course on discrete mathematics, but they do a number of topics there but the one that I enjoyed most was on proof and proving because I yeah. tell you this yeah. I had I did up to third year mathematics at the university level but I didn't I don't think I ever understood mm-hmm. how the proof and proofs worked and all this yeah, and until you started teaching it 
and mm-hmm. still I started teaching it. Yeah. And then I started reading that book that Susanna Epp wrote and I really started understanding what this is all about, right? And I think that course up to today, all my ideas concerning how proof and proving in mathematics is supposed to, to work and all that comes from that. Mm-hmm. And uh, there might be some areas in which I'm not so well-versed and all that. But some of the topics, even if I have to say it myself, because I taught it and because my master's is on that, my master's thesis is on elementary logic in mathematics and that. And because of that, I think I've, my understanding is so much better mm. of that. Mm-hmm. And I'll just direct the listeners to you have some work also on proof in the context of South Africa. Yes. But your other main research area is related to practice problems and what we might you know think of in the States and elsewhere as a spiral kind of curriculum where the practice problems kind of come around in an organized way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're interested in these, uh, this way that students maybe get to practice over long periods of time to try to have retention and that kind of thing. So where did your interest begin? What got you interested in this kind of topic? Okay, I'll have to go right back to while I was still teaching. Yeah. When I was teaching in high school, I was the head of department of mathematics at that school, right? And if you're head of department, then you kind of have to take responsibility for the matrix, the grade 12s, the highest, yeah. and all that. And I taught this for a number of years. And I can tell you this, for the first few years, I wasn't very successful as a teacher. Mm-hmm. So what the education department does is they take the results of everybody in the Western Cape, for example, Nowadays, they do it nationally, but back then, it was just a provincial thing. So, provincially, they will compare the schools to one another. They'll put your results, and then they'll compare how much, mm. uh, what is your average percentage, and then and they'll also show per question how wow. your students performed, oh, wow. and all that in it. And I always got the shock of my life. Mm. Back then, we had two kind of different streams in mathematics. You had standard grade and your higher grade. So, the higher grade students did a more difficult mathematics, if you want to. Name it that they also did extra topics and so on. Mm-hmm. The standard grade students did less and I would say an easier type of mathematics. Okay. But it's the standard grade students that never performed well. I, I think for as long as I was teaching at that school, the average pass rate was in the 30s, mm. like 30 something. Mm-hmm. Back then, the pass cutoff point was 33 and a third for mathematics. So if you got below that, you failed. If you mm-hmm. got 34%, then you, you passed. And for a very long time, I was like just within that range, either just above it or just below it. Mm. And that, and it was bothering me. Yeah. And I thought to myself, now what am I doing wrong? I mean, I'm doing this in the class. My teaching, according to me back then, was I was doing the correct things and all that. And I was searching for an answer to this thing. And a classic example of what happened to me back then was this. There was this one girl in the in my grade 12 class. Like, my style of teaching back then was I would do an example on the board and then ask them to do similar problems. Yeah, we have that in the States too. Yes, so I went to go sit next to this one girl. And uh, as I was going around in the class, I noticed that she was struggling. Went to go sit with her and then I discovered, okay, she made a mistake or two, corrected it. And I told her, look, this is where you went wrong. This is what you're supposed to do, blah, blah, blah. blah. Then I would give another one, another mm-hmm. similar problem, and then I would go around and say, ah, oh, she got it right now. Mm-hmm. But you know what? When she wrote the test, mm-hmm. based on that topic, she made exactly the same mistake that she made the first time. Uh-huh. And this is later in time. Later like, in time. When she takes the exam. And I was thinking to myself, now, did she get what I was saying? Mm-hmm. Because she then, immediately after that, she got it right. Mm-hmm. 
and that in this uh, I just couldn't figure out what was going on mm-hmm. actually that's when I started thinking but perhaps I need to study on this mm-hmm. and I started my honors and that and, and that so when I got to university that like I told you I did my masters in the in the mathematics department and that was more mathematical mm-hmm. you know it was less on mathematics education and more on mathematics mm-hmm. per se mm-hmm. but when I got here I started working with Professor Julie back then and he worked with a person that was working in the mathematics department before me that a guy unfortunately passed away and the two of them were doing something called spiral revision mm-hmm. yeah, right now what spiral revision is a, is a revision system that has two parts right on the one hand, you are doing similar problems right through the semester. Okay. Now, revision to us here in South Africa, and to, it's happening today still. The way people do revision is they will finish a topic or a number of topics, and then just before the big exam starts, oh, yeah. they will do a chunk of revision. You, uh, or we would call that like a review right before the test. My experience has been that this is not very effective. Hmm. Because, I mean, I'm taking myself as an example. Mm-hmm. I did exactly that thing with my students in grade 12. I would finish all the topics and then at the end we'll have this big review session mm-hmm. and all that and all that. And the results tell the story that it's not very effective. Mm-hmm. When I got here, started working with Professor Julian. That What happened was that he was talking about this. We didn't have names for it back then, but now we know today it's distrib- distributed practice, right? Right. Where you practice something not once in a term or a semester, and that, but many times. Mm-hmm. You'll go back to the same topic many times and do it more over and over and over. And, that. Mm-hmm. and then there's the other type of practice called interlude, which is... Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to get into that because mm-hmm. it's similar to distributed practice, but something different. So we're not really into that. So spiral revision to us, okay. right? And there is, there's an there's a, there's a American author. I can't get his name. I think it's Wineland. But back in the 60s or something like that, he did something called spiral revision. But his understanding of spiral revision and our understanding is very different. Okay. Right? So yeah. our definition of that is where we revisit topics over and over right through the semester. Okay. Right? And the spiral part comes in where you, every time you revisit the topic, the questions becomes progressively more conceptually advanced. Right? And then that comes into what we call productive practice. So productive practice is part of this spiral revision and productive practice has got a certain type of problem which we call deepening thinking like problems. Mm-hmm. And this particular article, yeah. I'm talking about this one incident that happened in the class where a class session actually caused us during the class session to create a deepening thinking like problem. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one of the most beautiful incidents that ever ever happened to me as a teacher mm-hmm. I'll, I'll just briefly explain what that was I was teaching on rationalization of denominators you know where you have square roots yeah. in a problem and to rationalize the denominator you multiply by that thing squared and all that mm-hmm. and then this one student in the class asked me now what would happen and I want to quote these exact words sure. so that you can see mm-hmm. that initially I was thrown off balance I mean, I didn't have an answer for him initially. I'll read it for you now. The topic under discussion in this lesson was the notion of rationalization of denominators. In the lesson, rationalization of denominators of examples such as 12 over square root 18, square root of x minus square root of y over square root of x plus square root of y, and 1 over the fifth root of 6 were discussed. 
after solutions were provided and discussed for these and other similar examples, student A posed a verbal question. Since the lead author did not quite understand his question, the student was requested to write his question on the whiteboard. I invited him to come forward. Okay, great. The following was his question. How would one do this one? And the one that he was talking about was A, where A is any is a variable, mm-hmm. divided by the nth root of B. And he asked how to undo it? His question was, how would you do this one? How would you do it? Okay. So, but remember, we're busy with rationalization of denominators, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. The lead author was in the process of providing a long-winded explanation when student <laughs> A interjected and asked if you could supply a solution. The following is his solution. Right? Okay. So, his solution was A over the nth root of B multiplied by the nth root of B to the power n minus 1 over the nth root of B to the power n minus 1. He just had two steps. And in the very next step, he had A multiplied by nth root of B to the power of n minus 1 divided by the nth root of B to the power n minus 1 multiplied by B. So since the roots is not the same, the stuff under the roots is not multiplied. That's where he stopped. He didn't. Okay. I tell you, this is in a class, in a teaching situation. I was looking at this problem and my mind was racing. Is this correct? Mm-hmm. First of all, mm-hmm. as I went through everything he did on the board, I realized that he was right. And because I now wanted to my next step in this teaching sequence, because he really showed depth of understanding in this conceptually, mm-hmm. right? Because first of all, he was moving from the particular, we did the particular examples, and in my mind, he was trying to generalize the solution procedure, right? So I'll tell you what happened. So I was thinking about this practically. This happened on a, on a, on a Friday. Hmm. I was thinking about it the whole weekend <laughs> and come that Monday I thought to myself I better check if what I thought was a, what was happening was really happening so now I designed my own question okay to check not only him but the rest because uh, the whole discussion flowed from that in the class yeah, in yeah. fact the whole class stopped and we just spoke about that the correctness of it yeah. what happened and how that square root over that is one in a different form and all that because that's the crux of the method that you're multiplying by the identity element for multiplication mm-hmm. right and so come the monday this mm-hmm. is the one i gave simplify the following by rationalizing the denominator i had this so i was thinking to myself let me give him one where there is more than one manipulation involved so that I can extract his reasoning from that. Right? So that, that was my whole goal with this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I gave him this one over, and if you can follow in that, so you can see what I'm referring to, the nth root of minus c divided by a to the power of m squared minus m minus n. Yeah, so just one is in the numerator, but in yes. the denominator there's an nth root of a fraction. Yes. And so inside the radical, the fraction has negative C on the top, and in the denominator it has A to the m squared minus m minus 2 power. Yes. And so you have the nth root of that whole fraction. Okay. Now let me try to explain to you what I was trying to do. I read an article by Littner, right? Now he had a student, I can't recall her name now, and they spoke about this whole notion of imitative reasoning and creative reasoning, right? So what happens normally in a mathematics class, and I think this was my mistake back then when I was teaching. I'm not so certain yet, mm-hmm. but I think this was my mistake back then. So I think what was happening was this, that back then, the students were imitating me. 
So I was writing the stuff on the board and their reasoning was of the imitative nature. So when they got to the exams, they could do those things that was very close to what I was showing them. Right? As soon as the thing was changed slightly and now they had to approach it conceptually, they didn't have the tools to deal with it. Right? Mm -hmm. So my whole goal with this whole exercise was to check this, to check if it was just him doing imitative reasoning, this student at a higher level, mm -hmm. or was he really creative in his reasoning, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And did we really design in that episode, in that teaching episode, that we really design together, me and him, a deepening thinking-like problem that would conceptually open up the whole procedure that was involved in there, mm -hmm. right? And because I wasn't certain, I gave this problem. Jump right to the end. Mm -hmm. He got a drum. Mm -hmm. right? I invited him again to the board. He couldn't do it and all that. Now, there's many reasons for that. It might be that this problem was a little bit too advanced mm -hmm. and he couldn't connect what we did the last time with that. Might be that. But my argument was that conceptually, the development of the, con the, the concepts that underpinned this whole notion of rationalization Mm -hmm. was developed to a certain level but not to the level where he became I would say in inverted commas an expert in that mm -hmm. and I, wa I want to read something to you mm -hmm. about what I wrote the intention one was to revise the work covered previously and on the other to determine if student A would recognize that his previous solution strategy need only be modified slightly to solve this question and therefore there is some generalizability in the solution mm -hmm. strategy right student A however was stumped by, by this question could not even start mm -hmm. so he couldn't do it right mm -hmm. Student B, whom I thought to be primarily an imitative reasoner, because when you mark this stuff, you can clearly see I can do those things that I've, mm -hmm. where he imitates what I've done, mm -hmm. but the other things, and so I thought this student B was somebody like that. Mm -hmm. The following is his solution, and if you just check later on in that, then you'll see that he did it absolutely correctly, right? When I asked him how he arrived at his answer, the following dialogue ensued. Uh, lead author, why did you decide to multiply by the nth root of c over that, that? Student B, I know that I have to take the additive inverse of the exponent, since this what is what we have learned in the first semester when we were doing properties of rational numbers. Now that mm. is a beautiful, beautiful statement. I'll tell you why. This happened in the first, in their first year year, right, when we are teaching them. So in the first year, we do properties of numbers, right, and part of that is where we teach them properties of the rational numbers, properties of the real numbers, and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. So now we're in the second semester, right? And at no stage did I connect what they were doing the right then, with additive inverses and all those terms that they used back then. Uh -huh. But he used that term. I he, see. He said, so that showed true understanding to me. He was bringing up a new connection that you had not actually modeled for them. Exactly. Yeah. So he showed that he really understood this to me. Yeah. And he was having, so student B was having some benefits and opportunity for creative reasoning when it was actually student A that kicked this thing off. So, uh, off. so at least another student was benefiting from this whole conversation that had been happening. I think you're absolutely right. I think that the first conversation on the Friday kick-started this whole thing. Mm -hmm. And the thing that went on in, in, the, in the following week, I can't remember it was the Monday or the Tuesday. Mm -hmm. But I think that stimulated all of them because I got so excited in the class mm -hmm. and I think the Tuesday when I got back I was so excited I think that they could see it mm -hmm. that I was really excited because I was thinking that this 
type of practice that we're doing is bearing fruit. Mm-hmm. You understand? And I think they could see that. So uh, let me just continue with what, you know, why did you add N? So they can end up with A to the power N. Mm-hmm. All right? So he's adding the additive inverse to get rid of all of those exponents. Yeah. And basically, under the, the root sign, you must now have 1 over N so that when you... Mm-hmm. So the, yeah, root, root cancels out. The root cancels out. So you just have to the power of 1. Mm-hmm. So all of that shows that. Mm. Now, my explanation for this is what follows there. When I look back at what I've written back then, I think it's a little bit um, thin and all that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still trying to... I don't think I'm experienced enough. Mm-hmm. I don't think I have the knowledge at this stage to really explain what is happening, and I'll mm-hmm. get back to that in a minute. Yeah, well, I also want to ask you, too, to say a little bit more. So these problems you call deepening thinking-like problems. Yes. So these are the problems where you're trying to go beyond just the first rudimentary examples that you might show. Mm-hmm. You're trying to have points where we push a little bit deeper and the problem really invites the students to maybe go into creative thinking or to just make some more connections about the material. Yes. Can you say a little bit more about the teaching model that you have that incorporates the deepening thinking-like problems? Um, if, if I'm understanding correctly, you have kind of a teaching model that you're thinking about that incorporates a few things and you're trying to give students more chances to practice and learn the material so that they really retain it later. So can you say a little bit more about that model? There are a number of things that we want to achieve with the teaching model, right? The first of that is retention of knowledge. Mm -hmm. In mathematics, you know, there's such a lot of things that they learn over a period of, of a semester and so on and so on. By the time they get to the exams, it's difficult to recall those things. Mm -hmm. And some of those things are fine nuances where you you can do this in this case, but in the other case you can't do it. If it's addition here and you can do certain things when there's a and there's a edit when it's added, then you can't do the same thing when it's for multiplication and all that. And they have to remember all these fine distinctions between yeah. all the manipulations that they have to do, right? And I think that it's what happens to most of them is that they forget. We think they don't understand, but I think sixty to seventy percent of the problem is just retention problems. They forget. So the part of this, the teaching strategy is for them to constantly revise things that they've learned in the past. So in other words, to keep those things fresh in their memory, so to speak. Mm-hmm. If you do this continuously, then most probably they will. And there's a lot of research I've read up mm-hmm. on, on a number of articles that shows that this distributed kind of practice mm-hmm. aids retention more than a once-off thing, and which, which we call mass practice, where you do a lot of one thing mm-hmm. and then only revise it at a much later date. Yeah. Right? So we say continuous revision, it's a better strategy. right? We're also saying that in that practice, all of the mathematical concepts, you can view it from very different angles. And if you ask questions in tests and so on, what you're basically doing is you're approaching the concept from different angles to probe their depth of understanding of that concept, right? Mm-hmm. And so what happens is you can never do all of the different ways in which a concept can be approached mm-hmm. in the classroom situation, right? It's, it's practically impossible. So what you need to do is to, to equip the student to do that. So deepening thinking like problems is, is a way of deepening their conceptual understanding of mm-hmm. a topic or topics in mathematics, yeah. right? So it is our tool that we use for that. And I said earlier, I was getting quite excited with the student A and student B. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that was I was thinking that, yeah, this thing is working. Mm-hmm. Right? Today, I'm not so certain anymore. But <laughs> I think that is, that is the nature of research, I think. Yeah. The other thing about the teaching model is that 
it is impossible to revise everything all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so if you've done in the first week, you've done five topics that you utilize, mm-hmm. ten different concepts, and mm-hmm. second week you do, you can't revise all of it, right? Yeah. So it is this thing where you have to kind of decide as the teacher, mm-hmm. as the instructor, how you are going to go about revising these things and then connecting them to one another. Mm-hmm. So one of the other reasons I got very, very excited with student B was when he made a connection with second semester work, with first semester work. And I think yeah. that made me think, but hey, this is that. Let me just quickly jump to another thing. Mm-hmm. And that is that. The reason why we do this continuous revision, right? I've read up on, 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 on memory structures and that, right? And the processes in the memory. Like you get the working memory and you get the long-term memory. Mm-hmm. And then you get how these memories are retained and so on and so on. I read up a little bit on that. And what happens when they do these procedures in the class, right? Initially, they do it. It's a laborious thing, especially if there's a lot of steps involved in the solution procedure, right? Then they, they struggle to do it and work through it and all this and that and the other. But more often they do it, the more that procedures move to the long-term memory, right? Mm-hmm. So now what happens, it's in the long-term memory, right? And while it is in there, you are constantly trying to refresh that, but you want also to have that retained thought connect with other things. Now, do you do that? Mm-hmm. Part of what I was doing was I had this what we call spiral testing. The whole teaching strategy is involved where you constantly... That. So we revise in class. I would at the start of every lesson, I would review stuff. I would ask them questions to determine if they're make con- making connections between what we are doing now with some previous uh, topic thought and so on and so on. And in the test itself, mm-hmm. I was giving them questions. Like in the test, I will have some questions based on topics that was written in the first test. Mm-hmm. In the third test, I will write. They will still do stuff that was written in the first test and the second test and so on and so mm-hmm. on and so on. And the reason why I was doing that was this is part of the current stuff that I'm doing, but it fits in with this. Mm-hmm. And this is that whenever you do that and the student recalls, brings that into his working memory and all that, if it's a different question, mm-hmm. right, it changes that thought that was, memory that was retained mm-hmm. in a new way. You see, so the test itself also changed the retained memories. Mm-hmm. By change, I mean that it's now conceptually connected to other things. Mm-hmm. Because in the test, he's now forced to think about the concept from that way, and, 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 and he remembers it in one way, and that, but he, okay, so he's got that, but how can I connect this to another thing? And, that, and research has shown again that that is better for retention than just kind of reviewing at the end of a topic and so on and so or just everything in isolation like you revisit it but it's always still by itself yeah 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 yeah. Um, i want to ask you one more question about your work uh we all probably agree that both conceptual understanding and procedural understanding are valuable they're both part of you know mathematics learning but there's kind of a debate about whether learners should start with a conceptual foundation to a topic and then the procedures become something that they've formalized based on their conceptual understanding Others would say you can work on procedural understanding and then once you have some of that built up, you can make connections and then that gives you your conceptual understanding. So kind of which direction um, learners proceed, conceptual to procedural or procedural to conceptual? I just wanted to ask your opinion on that. That'll be my last question about your 
by your work. Yes, I, I think that the work, the, the, the topic that you're busy with will answer that question. If you're working in grade one in the foundation phase, then there's only one way to go, and that's procedurally, right? You first teach them one, two, three, the procedure, how to count. Mm -hmm. The conceptual understanding and the opening up of the concepts will only come later. So down there, that's what happens. In other cases, it's better to start conceptually first. In Euclidean geometry, for example, there is no ways in which you can start with the procedures first, right? You have to start with the conceptual understanding first, and then the procedures follow after that, hmm. right? Because there's, in Euclidean geometry is one of those topics where the procedures are very seldom the same, mm -hmm. right? And then and, and if you start with procedures first, they're going to fall into the trap of trying to imitate mm -hmm. what they see, right? So there's a, the real danger there that if you do that, then th that will happen. I also believe that there is articles written that I can't get to the authors now mm -hmm. that talk about this whole notion of your conceptual understanding informing your procedural understanding and your procedural understanding informing your conceptual understanding mm -hmm. in an iterat iterative mm -hmm. fashion. Mm -hmm. My understanding of that is that's exactly what happens. Okay. In some instances you'll be working on a procedure and then you'll hit some snag, some problem in, in that because it doesn't fit exactly that. And so now you've, 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 you've got to think about, about what next. And that will improve the conceptual understanding because that what next that follows mm. would then inform your conceptual understanding and improve that, right? In other cases, you will start with something conceptually and then try and, 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 and develop a procedure to, to show your conceptual understanding. Mm -hmm. But in that process, the conceptual understanding is then informing how the procedure will develop uh, from there and that. And I for a very for a very long time when I started reading Hibbert, mm -hmm. I think I initially perhaps had a very limited understanding of him and, and, and what is the lady's name again? Ah, uh, Lefebvre. Lefebvre. And I think my understanding of that was limited in the beginning. But as I read more and more and more, I I, dis I discovered that this is not really what they are saying. When you add other authors to that, like Star, and you add um, who's this other people that wrote about that iterative connection between conceptual and procedural when I read those articles I, I think I had a better grip mm -hmm. on, 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 on what uh, the conceptual and the procedural how those two are linked to one another and that and so I think now I think I've got a better understanding of that and I think I'm better able to kind of link it with the work that we're doing mm -hmm. right and initially I think I've in these articles if you read it you'll see how very naive I was mm. in in the way I expressed my thoughts and all that. And I don't know that I'm thinking that I'm much better now. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking I'm, 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 I'm on a route to kind of, like I'm writing an article now where I'm trying to uh, uh, write something for a journal. Mm -hmm. and, and I get stuck, like now I'm stuck for the last week or two with that. Mm -hmm. and, and it's, I think I'm trying to kind of get the breakthrough. Yeah. And it's... All those kinds of things that, go, that I'm thinking about. Yeah. And it, it kind of sounds like, too, that you maybe were working... Originally, you were working on a procedure for teaching, and now you've kind of developed some more conceptual understanding for what you're doing, and now yes. you're going to revise the procedure <laughs> yes, yes. on the teaching that you want to do. But that, um, thank you so much for talking about that. My, my guest is Bruce May from the University of the Western Cape here in South Africa. Before I let you go, I want to ask one more question. I ask all the guests just for fun. 
if you now imagine that you were not in maths or maths education at all, and you were doing a completely different career, what could you imagine as that other career? There are two things. Okay. Back in the day when I was doing my undergraduate degree, I was doing physics. Mm -hmm. When I was in my third year, they brought in this, this is now in the 80s, they brought in something called astrophysics. Mm-hmm. Right, and I was interested in it. They took us to Sutherland, where they have these large telescopes. Oh yeah, yeah, Sutherland telescopes. Yeah, yeah, and so I today it's much more advanced than back then. Any case, so in the eighties, when they saw the stuff, and I was very, very interested in it, but unfortunately, my family was going through certain things that back then, and I had I was forced to go and work, uh-huh. so I couldn't like continue with that and all that. And then I started teaching, and mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to change careers mm-hmm. once you've got a family. I got married in between. Difficult to change direction and all that, so I couldn't. The other thing that fascinates me, I think even back then and now, is both cognitive psychology and neuroscience, that combination. Mm-hmm. And fortunately today there is this marrying of the two, cognitive neuroscience, mm-hmm. which I am very, very interested in. I actually want to do a master's in that, but uh, yeah. you know, at my age, <laughs> people look at me, they will say to me, say, ah, he's, he's just his fantasy, mm-hmm. he's never going to get there, but... Yeah. If an opportunity like that comes around, I will grab it with both hands. Yeah. The closest I got to that was I volunteered to be a participant in like an fMRI study. Yes, so they scanned my resonance. <laughs> yeah. So I got, but they gave me my brain scans to like keep, so that was kind of fun. But it was it's quite the experience being in there. They projected some physics problems and some like rotational visualization problems. Uh-huh. And they projected it to me while I was in the machine. And I had to kind of answer it and think about it like, while they were scanning. <laughs> it's, it was kind of fun, yeah. yeah. Maybe you can be a subject of that research, even ah, if you yeah, don't. <laughs> something, yeah, that'll be fine for me. <laughs> so like I say. Well, Bruce, thanks so much for speaking with me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, thanks. Thanks, too.